Hello everybody, welcome to this CCS podcast. I'm Tim Summers and I'm very pleased today to have with me my colleague, Professor Ling Minghua, who's going to talk to us about her book, The Inconvenience Generation. So Minghua, tell Hi. us a bit about this book. What got you started on writing this book in the first place? It started from my dissertation project. I was very interested in how the hukou barriers has been shaping the migrant children's education and life chances. So I conducted year-long fieldwork in Shanghai and Beijing, and then I feel like their stories propelled me to keep on following up on their development. So it ended up in a longitudinal study about their coming-of-age experience. So what age are these migrant children? How, how old were they when you started following them, and what sort of time period did the study cover? So when I started the project, I was trying to decide exactly when should I start to look at them, right? And at that time, there has been studies about migrant schools and primary schools and how poorly they were run and because there's a whole called discrimination. So I feel I need to study beyond that. And I look at the policies and feel that the grade nine in middle school is the watershed for uh, those migrant kids because they were not allowed to take the high school entrance examination in cities like Shanghai and Beijing. And then they had to decide whether they go back to their registered hometown or stay in the city, right? Um, so I decided to follow uh, two groups of mostly middle school students going up for uh, grade nine and see how they struggle with this choice and how they go through this last year of their middle school and then what leads them to. So it's uh, around age 14, 15. But then, so now they are already in their mid-twenties. Tell us a bit more about the Hukou system because maybe not everybody's very familiar with how this works, right? This is something that really constrains and shapes your choices if you're a, a person in China. Yeah, for anyone who are familiar with China, this hukou is something you cannot escape from. Um, since the late 1950s, the Chinese government adopted the Soviet model uh, of a population control and the registration and come up with this hukou system, which, which also has a kind of a long historical legacy. So then each household will be assigned to a hukou household registration, and they, it will have a type, whether you are agriculture or non-agricultural type and also there's a place attached to it so if your parents and the generations uh, has been living in uh, in this village under this county then your registered hukou place will be um, this village and this county and then your children would inherit this uh, hukou status this was a worked not pretty well, but it worked during the state uh, planning economy because people were not allowed to move that much. Um, but after the economic reforms, when people start to move around searching for jobs and better opportunities, this become a real problem. And now, uh, keeping in mind, you know, according to the 2018 census, we have over 280 million people living outside of their registered home place for more than six months, which means um, 280 million people 
have facing difficulties or kind of a barriers uh, caused by this hukou because the hukou status also ties your entitlement to basic um, education, uh, medical care, and other social benefits. So hukou is agricultural and non-agricultural. That sounds rather strange, right? Today China is majority urban population. I think something like 60% of people live in cities now. So agricultural, non-agricultural, what, what, what are these categories? About? Yeah, exactly, right? So there's a dilemma. A lot of people who had official document, agricultural hukou, has never been uh, engaged in agricultural work. As, uh, students that I studied in my work, they were either born in Shanghai or moved to Shanghai at a very young age. They never worked in farms and a lot of them cannot even recognize uh, the difference between rice and wheat. So um, this agricultural status becomes uh, very nominal and distant, yet it still plays a huge uh, role in shaping their um, everyday life because if you are agricultural hukou registered in Anhui province, then you are considered as an outsider in Shanghai, even though you grew up there for over a decade. And then when you are trying to um, enroll in schools, especially public schools, uh, in the past, since before 2000s, you have to pay extra fees and you also have to use a lot of uh, social networks to get yourself a seat in the school. So when I started my dissertation fieldwork, the Shanghai government adopted a relatively aggressive policy to open up its public primary and middle schools uh, and subsidize those schools for enrolling uh, qualified migrant students. It's not a uh, all f free for all. Also, also qualified Qual migrant students. Yeah, so qualified migrant students requires dozens of a paperwork. So first, they need to prove that their parents have proper employment, uh, stable employment in Shanghai, and they also have been living in Shanghai with a the proof of address or kind of a tenant and a lease, uh, or property ownership, and certainly they need to show that they do not violate the birth uh, control policies. Um, if you uh, can produce those um, paperwork, then you could uh, study in public school um, for free because according to the compulsory education law. Is that easy for them to do? I mean, how many of these kids are able to provide that documentation that shows they're qualified? Um, not that easy. I don't have the specific number, but given the, f the fact that there are over 130 private migrant schools still operating in 2000s in Shanghai while the public schools are gradually opening up. It shows the demand and supply is not even, right? So there are definitely more migrant students. According to uh, official statistics, about 70% of migrant students go to the public schools, while the remaining 30% still go to those migrant schools um, run by migrants themselves. But in, in reality, it's hard to get specific statistics based on just my individual research but I, I think it's not easy and the story is that now it's getting harder and since 2014 the Chinese government um, has this Hukou reform 
and is trying to encourage uh, more urbanization, but it's mostly in small towns and uh, second tier or third tier cities. Right. So for mega cities like Shanghai, Beijing, and Shenzhen, they actually tightened the policies uh, regarding uh, migrants. So in Shanghai, they make it harder for migrant uh, students to go into public schools for free. And when you were doing this research, you must have got to know some of these um, young people quite well. Do you have any stories you can tell us about any individuals, any of your friends that you made during the research? Yeah, I mean, I know them when they were 12, uh, the eldest probably around 17. And uh, I have been following a lot of them um, around for over a decade. So indeed, um, I got to know a lot about their personal lives and their uh, girls and also their family situations. There's a lot of stories, I, but I did actually cut a lot out of the book um, to protect individual privacy and also to keep the book tight. And um, I feel it's very hard to pick just mm. one. And because there might be more girls uh, described in details in my book than boys, so here I'll probably just talk about a little bit more about the boys. So, and it's very interesting because in China there's this long-standing social cultural practice of uh, sound preference, right, in which um, sound was uh, preferred because they continue the family line and uh, will inherit the family property and uh, perform filial piety, right? Well, that's the social expectation. So sounds are often uh, perceived to be the advantaged uh, one. But I think this whole Hukou policy and this migrant status played a um, very interesting twist on uh, some of those young men's lives and uh, personal growth. Um, so first, this gender stereotype that girls are more obedient, um, more mature, it actually enables a lot of uh, my informants, uh, female informants, to uh, pursue higher education. So uh, parents feel a little bit more comfortable sending them back to their registered home villages uh, to study because you often have to um, study in a boarding school. A lot of the boys were kept in Shanghai. So they finished middle school and then went to a vocational school, which was uh, probably the only viable formal education channel for uh, them. So they end up having a vocational education degree, which was not highly valued in, in Shanghai. So, and, and the majors uh, that are available to, for them to study are often manufacturer-oriented. Uh, so uh, a lot of them um, majored in mechanics, uh, auto rep repair, and the, so these are considered to be the future manual jobs. And that create a lot of um, kind of anxiety, I think. Some, even though they, they tend not to talk that much uh, in daily life, but when you hang around with them, you, you kind of feel the tension, right? So in my uh, chapter uh, six, when, talking, uh, when I talk about how consumption has played a huge role in their daily life and identity formation, there's a vineyard that I, I try to present that is, um, in, the, um, in the summer afternoon, we were just chatting, uh, groups uh, talking about the, because a, a girl came back from her hometown in Anhui province, asking her friends um, who they, she grew up with, you know, what she should do. 
um, should she continue to um, pursue college education back in Anhui or uh, return to Shanghai just to start a, as a, a vocational education and find a job. This, um, this guy, and I know him since he was 10, so he, he always kind of has this uh, kind of uh, internal tension about um, his aspiration and his, his constraints were right, imposed on them. So he was constantly telling the girl how Shanghai is much better than Anhui. She should come back to Shanghai because the, the schools in Shanghai are simply better um, and there will be more opportunities. But then later when they are shift topic to something else and suddenly someone mentioned the cars, then they start to talk about uh, you know, brand names and which brand is considered to be the high end, which is the fancy one, and how they wanted to arrange Maseratis for uh, like the wedding car parade, right? And then he jumping in the end. You know what? We also should ride. I would like just ride the, the muddy horse, a uh, grass horse, uh, for my wedding. And so you know, right? That phrase is a uh, online. Uh, like a poem uh, referring to a curse word but it's widely used on the internet and among the youth to uh, refer to something like just something really uh, shitty and so and he, and he laughed and everyone laughed with him but I just feel this, this moment is kind of a moment of anxiety and maybe a little tint of disillusion about a prosperous urban uh, middle-class lifestyle that these young people all aspire to but clearly would be very hard to uh, achieve if you were not uh, encouraged systematically to pursue a higher education, right? Actually, they were systematically prevented from realizing the higher education uh, aspiration and hence their jobs also tend to be lower-end manufacturing or service jobs. So that's discriminatory kind of a, it hurts. It's a comic moment, but since I know him uh, through this whole long period, and, and I just, it hurts when you hear that, yeah. Yeah, so there's, there's a lot of humor, there's a lot of personal reflections that come through in your discussions with these, uh, these young people. Um, I, I think one of the great things about the book actually is the stories that you, you tell, but you also help explain what those stories mean. And it's an academic book, so you're putting this in a broader context of an academic field of inquiry. Um, can you tell us a little bit about some of the concepts or the ideas that you use uh, that are more academic in nature that help you to explain and understand what's going on? Mm. This book is about uh, um, urbanization and its uh, ramification right, upon individual lives. So one key issue is about this, um, the ongoing uh, mechanism of social stratification and reproduction. So how inequality has been transferred across generation. This I use a segmented inclusion to capture what the Shanghai government policy has done to those uh, second generation migrant youth. Because um, the opening up of the public school is an attempt to include those migrant children, which the government realized that it's essential to educate them so that they can provide the very much needed uh, semi-skilled labor for its economic growth and urban development. But various limitations imposed on this uh, inclusion, such as the paperwork and also 
the uh, types of schools that are open to them, the type of vocational schools that are welcoming migrant students, and also in terms of employment policies, um, which still discriminate uh, non-local uh, kind of workers. All these um, create this segmentation. So in my uh, second chapter, actually the third chapter, talking about the year-long grade 9 experience among those students, you can see this um, spatially, temporally. There's a lot of practice of differentiation that's in, uh, felt by those teenagers in their everyday school life. You know, who gets what kind of homework? Who gets to assign what kind of class with who, what kind of a teacher? And uh, who can get leave school early? So migrant students are usually asked to leave school early, and uh, they when also- When you say leave school early, early, you mean? So their class ends around 3.30, while local students will be kept in school to do more exercises, because local students are expect to take the um, high-stake high school entrance examination. Mm -hmm. but migrant students, because they have the HUCO non-local status, uh, are not eligible for that. So um, the teachers just were discouraged uh, from counting with them. So they just decided to let them go. Or sometimes they, some schools keep them in so-called self-study sessions without much uh, instruction. So that's create a lot of um, behaviors, mm -hmm. which then create this virtuous circle because the teachers will complain about m some migrant student uh, rebellious behavior. Yeah. And then... And, and, and in the book, at one or two points, you compare that a little bit to some experiences in other societies, right? Can you... Talk about yeah, that. I mean, uh, I think this kind of phenomena is uh, by no means unique um, to China. In, in the U.S. or in Europe, where there's a lot of uh, migrants, especially in, in, in the schooling setting, um, you can see this segregation or limited efforts to integrate students. And there's uh, quite some studies having show how differentiated practices by teachers and also even differentiated um, language used by teachers to express their different aspiration for those students because they mm -hmm. often expect more from the local, whether it's white or French uh, students, while mm -hmm. for immigrant students they tend to play down the expectation and that kind of have a very negative um, feedback mechanism uh, for the migrants or immigrants. So um, it's a kind of a global phenomenon I think today, especially when nativist sentiments are rising around the core major cities where you know migrants are now perceived often as threats, um, burdens um, to the local society, even though they do rely on a lot of cheap migrant labor for uh, you know transportation, uh, domestic health and the child care and the elderly care, right? So this tension, I use the borrow scholar Freeman's work, uh, the phrase urban growth dilemma. It's a dilemma um, because there's a very contradictory um, kind of pulling and pushing out um, forces felt in the government level, also among locals and uh, those migrant communities. So meanwhile, why, why Shanghai and how did you get into these schools uh, and to know the people you talked to? Um, actually, when I started my research, I tried to not, not to focus on Shanghai. Um, I went to Hangzhou 
and also Beijing. But I found Shanghai over time present itself to be the most intriguing and also most viable option for me. So first of all, I was coming from Shanghai, so I have a lot of network and that can help me to pull strings to get me access to public schools, which usually was very hard because I want to do participant observation. So I want to sit in the classroom and as well as a teacher's office. So you need network, guanxi, uh, the social network to do that. But more importantly, I think analytically, Shanghai presents a very important and interesting case. So um, in the 90s, most migrant studies in China focus on the Pearl River Delta. Mm -hmm. And gradually, the uh, in Beijing, because there's a famous uh, Zhejiang village in Beijing, so there are several important anthropological work on that community. Uh, Shanghai actually was relatively understudied. However, um, Shanghai did uh, see a rapid growth of a migrant population, um, seeing, especially after Pudong's kind of opened up. So in the early 1990s. Yeah, 90, yes. So the, it's kind of the, uh, the migrant population. And Shanghai has very low uh, negative natural population growth by birth because um, Shanghai urban households just produce less and less children. So the population growth was very much triggered but contributed by the migrants. One out of three children in Shanghai do not have a Shanghai hukou. So and I think it's very important to understand how those non-local children uh, grow up uh, in Shanghai and make terms uh, with all the kinds of differentiated uh, policies. And um, certainly, you know, Shanghai is a metropolitan city that has shaped by migrants, right? Um, even back in the uh, late 19th century and the early 10th, uh, 20th century. And there's quite a lot of uh, historical studies about the um, social discrimination and uh, stratification within the city in the Republic uh, era. So we know this notorious uh, label that people use against a certain type of people, the Subei people, right? So prejudice, uh, ha pride and prejudice is a kind of constant theme um, in Shanghai. Shanghai need, uh, local Shanghainese are often very self-conscious about their own identity and the, the advantage and the prestige that this city gives. And a lot of migrants are also self-consciously talking about how we are the we are the outsiders. So there's a spatial, cultural, and a political hierarchy pre-existing right, um, in, in, in this city. So I, I'm very interested in see how this uh, hierarchy might be changing or maybe reinforced in which ways. So I think a, a case study of Shanghai will be very interesting to study the politics of the differentiation and the citizenship. Yeah. So how do you feel doing research in Shanghai or from Shanghai? You know, what was what, it like? It was a very yeah, interesting uh, process. And I think you know, a lot of authors will start their first novels with uh, biographic details, right? Because that's where you draw your insights and fleeing from. I mean, for me, uh, this project is partly personal. I'm from Shanghai, but I grew up in Pudong. I witnessed the great uh, transformation of uh, the former rural area of uh, Shanghai, which was considered to be the uh, lower end of, of the uh, inferior part of Shanghai, right? And the people are very self-conscious about this Pudong Puxi. 
upper and the lower sides of the city um, divided by the Huangpu River. I think, you know, I have been interested in the issue of the different, differentiation and the prejudice uh, since childhood. Growing up in Pudong allows me to witness changing social and the demographic structure of the local society. Because uh, when I was in primary school, all students were local. Uh, coming from nearby you know, do you speak, towns. Do you speak Shanghainese um, at, at that stage a lot in school? Uh, no. So when I grew up, the Chinese government has this Putonghua campaign and we grew up speaking more Putonghua than Shanghai dialect. Mm. Of course, when our teachers, uh, those, especially those um, senior teachers, cannot help um, pop up some dialect or kind of speak Putonghua with a very strong Shanghai accent. But I think my generation grew up very used to speaking Putonghua. This Shanghai local identity has been um, Diluted a bit, diluted, almost, yeah, yeah it become process. weaker. Yeah. yeah, but then later when I revisit my primary school, you can see in front of the gate, there's a Chinese map indicating where all the students come from. My teacher who still remain there will come, cannot help telling me my primary school has become a migrant school. Even though it remains public, but the student body was uh, composed almost entirely of non-local students coming from different parts of uh, China. So I got, in, uh, got interested in their lives. And when I was uh, thinking about my dissertation project, um, I was uh, back in Shanghai to visit my family. And uh, there's a, a carpenter who was from Zhejiang province came to my house and uh, asked me for advice on her daughter's college application. And I realized, wow, here the carpenter who moved to Shanghai in, in the early 80s making furnitures uh, and help uh, interior decoration, right? He, now his children are already in college or thinking about applying for college. So the whole generation, a new generation, are now coming of age. But at that time, in around 2004 or 5, there was a very little study about them. I decided to follow the thread and to pursue um, that research. Yeah, so it, it is personal in that sense. When I was doing field work, I also hang out with my own local friends who are mostly um, you know, professionals um, working in um, joint ventures, uh, multinational companies and to hear how school they... friends friends yes. from primary and secondary uh, school uh, uh, yes yeah. and uh, it's kind of interesting to see uh, their perceptions about the migrants and uh, how they complain about um, public hospitals and being crowded mm. the increasing competition for a limit number of uh, so-called good schools so again it sounds a bit like urban like... politics elsewhere in yeah. some ways yeah yeah the story of those uh, migrants in shanghai can find a lot of resonance across the world where you have a pre-existing social strata, and uh, then the newcomers often kind of uh, have to navigate through a very uh, complex web of uh, prejudice and discrimination, yeah. What was the biggest challenge in writing the book? To find a voice and, and, and um, to come up with an overall framework that can pull all the stories which is spread over 10 years together to tell a story and to um, compose a narrative. 
And uh, in the process, I think it, the selection is very hard because I said um, I leave out a lot of materials. Um, even though my readers will tell you that's very common, you always end up using much less data that, than you have collected. But because the project it becomes personal as you follow up with those informants, it's harder to pick it and um, present it in a way that uh, also try to make a theoretical argument. So, yeah, it, that, that, that part is pretty hard. You're shedding a lot of uh, things that you still maybe emotionally feel attached to. Well, congratulations, Minghua, on the book. It's a great read, lots of wonderful stories, uh, insights into, I think, the complexity and the diversity of life in contemporary China. Thanks very much for talking to us today on our CCS podcast. Thank you very much um, for giving me the chance um, to talk about my book, and I hope to hear your talk about your book too. <laughs> okay, thank you very much. Great, thank you very much, everybody. This podcast is brought to you by the Center for China Studies at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. We offer degrees from bachelor's to PhD with a diverse faculty dedicated to studying and understanding China from a multidisciplinary perspective. Special thanks to Yan Yichiao for the music. Please check out our website at ccs.cuhk.edu.hk or find us on social media.